Hey, joining us today, we have a very special guest. We have Kara Santa Maria is here. Welcome, Kara. Hello. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate this. Um, I was going to do an intro that said of all the things you do, like she does this, she does You do so much, though. Uh, <laughs> My bio is confusing. It is very... Yeah, and it also, like, <laughs> changes every week. So I'll, I'll do some sort of event. I'll be invited to speak. And then they'll read the intro, and I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't work on that show anymore. But now I work on these shows. Yeah, it's like, oh, God. Yeah, I, I have, like, you were, you were a correspondent at Al Jazeera, right? I is was, that, but is, now there is no more Al Jazeera America. Right, so that's gone. <laughs> so that's gone. Yeah. Huffington Post? Was that, was I think it was there? years ago. Yeah, that was years ago. That was your no, fault. yeah, that was all my fault. Um, it had nothing it had nothing to do with Doha. Yeah. It was all my fault. Yeah, Huffington Post was actually one of my first sitcom jobs, so that was years ago. Um, right now I work on three I would say about three ongoing television shows that are all kind of on hiatus. So um, this is really my first week off in, in many, many months. But I work on a local show here in L.A. called SoCal Connected, which is on KCET, a public television I had that. station. I had that yes, on my good. You can put a check mark next to that one. Um, well, I saw the one where you guys went uh, stayed at the Smart House. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was on the Al Jazeera show. Oh, <laughs> I swear I just watched it. Yeah, so that one was fun, though. It was really fun. Uh, I also work on a kid's show that's on Fox uh, Saturday mornings called Fab Lab. And I work. Is that like a science show? Yeah, it's like a science show that really focuses on tween girls to get them excited about science. So we try to tell the kinds of stories that are really interested or interesting to girls that age. So it's a lot of very pro-social stuff, a lot of science to help, science to heal, those kinds of um, sort of avenues in. It's not so much like blow shit up science. It's right. more, um, yeah, help, help the world be a better place science. That and then, sounds great. Yeah, I actually great. have a tween girl. She's 12 years old. Oh, gosh. Well, that's perfect she, for her. She is getting interested in all that stuff. I'm trying not to push all the things I like, like right onto her, but well, yeah, that's why I think this show has a good angle because it's, it's young, it's fresh, but it's a lot of stories about the environment. It's a lot of stories about saving animals, you know, both pets and wildlife and just a lot of things that I think really speak to girls at that age a little bit more. So we focus on that specifically and it's, um, a mostly female cast, uh, any given episode, there are three women and one, I say women and men were kind of girls and boys. So three younger um younger women and one younger man and we yeah we geek out about science it's pretty fun and then we sh like showcase young girls around the country that are doing cool stuff oh that sounds great yeah it's a really it's a really fun show and then the last show that i'm actively working on we actually wrapped season one i'm not sure if they're starting work on season two but we have a couple little shoots um kind of continuing from season one is a show on TBS called America's Greatest Makers. It's a reality competition show that is um, sponsored by Intel and produced by Mark Burnett. And I actually kind of did all of the web stuff 
um, wow. going along with that show. So if you go to the web hub, americasgreatestmakers.com, like I'm all over it. I do all the interviews with the contestants that move forward, the contestants that got kicked off. I did pre and post show wraps. And then I also did a full series leading up to the launch of the show where I went to maker spaces around the country and featured makers that are doing cool things. And there's also a series of how-to videos if you're interested in learning how to solder or how to weld or how to build a circuit and things of that nature. Oh, okay. Yeah, so when you say, when it says makers, is it like inventors or is it like crafts people? Yeah, or? the maker movement is it's it's pretty broad, but it's basically anybody who tinkers, you know, anybody who likes to go into their garage or go into a shop or even work in their um, in their craft room in their house and and create something with their own hands. So it could be oh. any anywhere from arts and crafts all the way to really intense industrial electronics to computational right. stuff, you know, making drones, uh, it, making woodwork. It it runs the gamut, but it's really anybody who wants to to make. Is there a duct tape category? Cuz I can there do amazing be. things with duct yeah. tape. <laughs> I think duct tape is a I mean, according to Mark Watney in The Martian, it's like right. the greatest invention <laughs> ever. Yeah, it qualifies, right? Yeah. How, hey, speaking of The Martian, that was a favorite movie, sort of, around here. Um, you guys, you guys liked. I, I know you guys did a, um, a, a review of it on the SGU. Did you? Mm-hmm. What did you think of that movie? The science. Uh, the movie or the book? Oh, let's start with the book. I so love the, the book. book. Yeah, the yeah. book was incredible. I think that, you know, for people who don't know, Andy Weird, the author, in many ways crowdsourced his book, meaning that not that he crowdsourced it to pay for it, but that when he first started writing it, he didn't have a secured publisher. And so he just started publishing chapters online, like self-publishing. And it got this like cult following and a lot of scientific thinkers would read the chapters and be like, hey, dude, like that's interesting, but you got the science wrong on this. Or wouldn't it be more cool if he did this to make water, you know, blah, blah, blah. And oh, he yeah, was, yeah. Yeah, he's able to integrate all of that into the book to make it, you know, pretty scientifically accurate. There's still a handful of things that absolutely couldn't happen, like the dust storm on Mars. And he knows that. And he says, hey, I'm still a writer and I wanted to use that device. And it was really important to me that this be a kind of man versus nature Um set up or theme. So I appreciate that about him too, because I always get annoyed when like curmudgeonly scientists like watch (laughs) movies just to rip them apart. You're like, really? Okay, of course. There's always going to be some like Hollywood bullshit in there. So that said, I mean, I loved the book. It's such a page turner. I read it in like four days and I'm a really slow reader. So that was huge. Um, And the movie, I honestly think, stood up to the book. Obviously, it's not as good as the book. Movies are rarely as good as the book. And there's so much stuff they had to leave out because, A, they wanted to keep it PG-13. So he only got like one fucking. I know. Yeah, it was super annoying. And B, they just, you can't fit everything that happens in the book into the movie. It would be like 12 hours long. But I do think they did a good job of representing it. I think that they did. They used a really smart device because from the beginning, I was like, how are they going to make a movie that's basically all diary entries? And it's right. like, oh, they made them video diary. <laughs> Duh. Right. That was really smart. No, I remember watching the movie, and when he's trying to get to the uh, the other site so they can, he could take off and they could pick him up, I remember in the book it seemed like like five or six things went horribly wrong. And in the yeah. movie, just like one or two. And I, I was looking at the clock, I'm like, I'm like oh, I think he's going to make it there pretty soon because <laughs> this movie's yeah. already two hours long. Yeah, there's definitely a whole piece kind of for anybody. I don't think this is a spoiler at all, but for for when he's leaving the hab in order to go back to the the 
uh, checkpoint, like the pickup site, it's a pretty smooth ride. It's almost like it's not a montage, but it's it's a pretty smooth ride. Where in the book, yeah. like so many horrible things happened to him while he right. was in the rover. <laughs> And they're like, we've run out of horrible things. Like, we got to get to the end. Right. <laughs> we got to wrap this thing up. Yeah. He just got stuck in sand for like five minutes. And he's like, exactly. Okay, yeah. He just kept like rolling over. It's, <laughs> it was annoying. Yeah. I, I liked them both. I really liked the movie. And then uh, and then Chuck just killed it for me right after that. Yes. Like, no. Not <laughs> a Curmudgeonly scientific type. Yeah. He's one of those curmudgeonly people. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, there are things, obviously, like, JPL doesn't really look like that. Spoiler alert. Um, I think they filmed I mean, that like at, like... I think it does, though. It's no, it's... Like, I honestly think they filmed that at, like, CAA, which is one of the big agencies out here. Like, it's all glass <laughs> and, like, I, you know, I'm like, no, JPL doesn't look like that. JPL's, like, built in the 60s. Um, right. I just went on a tour of it the other day. Like, it's kind of shit. There's some really cool aspects of it, and they're doing amazing cutting-edge science, but, like, the buildings don't actually look like that. Is it all, like, a best of ceiling panels and, you know... Yeah, oh, uh, totally. It's all like linoleum flooring, yeah. and like it's actually kind of retro. Like the lettering on all the buildings is really cool and and retro looking. But a, a lot of the posters that are hanging on the walls, like safety posters, are just are people in like huge Coke bottle glasses with like oh. you know amazing um, what do you call them? You know, like business in the front and party in the back. Oh, mullets! Mullets, yeah, a lot of mullets, a lot of oh, mullets in those pictures. Uh, we should talk about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's great, but that's not about you. You also do, uh, you're on at least two podcasts now. You have your own podcast, Talk Nerdy, right? Yes. And then you've joined the SGU, the Skeptic Guide of the Universe. Yeah, and I've been with them now for like over a year. It's crazy. It's been that long. I think so. Yeah, I've done, I could probably look up how many specific episodes I've done, but it's been a while. Was um, that a surprise I, to you? Did they, because they kind of, they kind of sneak interviewed you, didn't they? They did. I mean, I had been on the show twice. I think the first time was like a while back. And then, is that true? I think so. And then the second time, yeah, it was kind of a sneak interview, like totally just thought I was guesting on the show, but I was actually guest rogue. So I did the whole show. Um, really wasn't, didn't even cross my mind that they were right. sort of interviewing. And then I got a call. I want to say it was either from Steve or Jay that was like, we need to talk. Is there a time we can like Skype in? And I was like, okay. Um, what? <laughs> that doesn't sound good. We need to I know. Talk. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> um, and then they were like, this is a huge secret. Like, we, you know, cone of silence. Like, you have to keep it a secret, but like, this is what we're thinking. And like, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And this is the kind of expectation we have and the kind of work that it's going to take and blah, blah, blah. But we can't announce it, you know, until we're ready to announce it. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so it was super weird because at TAM, which is where we made the announcement last year um, in Vegas, they did this big kind of private show, this fundraiser private show, and they invited me as a guest. So I'm there amongst like hundreds of other people who bought tickets to the show. But we weren't going to announce until the next day when we did the sort of public recording. So all these people kept asking like, are you going to get a new rogue? Is it going to be a woman? When are you going to do it? And they're all lying. They're all just basically like, (laughs) no yet. We're, you know, we don't want to rush anything. If it seems right, it'll be right. But until then, we're totally fine just having the four of us. And I'm just sitting there like sometimes at the same table. I remember specifically sitting next to Evan while he was answering questions of people at the table and saying all of that. And I'm just like, texting on my phone to try not to look like I'm, I have the worst poker face ever. it It was interesting. How's the reception been? Uh, great. I mean, you know, it's like you have the standard small percentage of people who are super sexist, but honestly, like I think Rebecca 
had it just as bad, if not worse. So it's a it's it's a certain part that comes with the territory. But beyond that, the reception's been really good. People have been really really warm, and um, we get emails every week from people welcoming me to the cast and, and thanking me for being there. So it, it it means a lot. It feels really good. Yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, uh, it was, I was really happy to hear that, that they were getting somebody else, and then when I found out it was you. I was like, oh, that is a that's like the perfect choice for me. And it was funny because the the interplay between those guys uh, without somebody, I don't know. I don't know how long they've been. I mean, obviously, they're family. And then I don't know, Evan, how long he's, they've known each other. If they all grew up or something. Long but, time. I mean, because okay. Evan's been on the show. They The show has been going 11 years and Evan's been on since the beginning. So I know they've right. known each other, you know, a long time since then or before then. Yeah, it was almost a little too close for me, and it was great to have a new voice in there. Oh, sure. Yeah, and uh, also, I'm not local like them. You know, they're all in Connecticut. They're right. all in the same area. They all have, like, similar accents. Um, you're right. Three of them are, are brothers who are, like, really, really close, but also, like, bicker constantly. Right. Um and and they're all boys <laughs> yeah and and they're all boys and they're all much older and so i do think that i bring in a slightly different perspective because i'm female i'm young i'm like much more punk rock i'm much more i don't know if i'm much more left-leaning because they're very private about their politics but right. um you know we, we try not to talk about t- politics on the show too much but i'm definitely pretty outspoken in the atheist community as well and um, have a totally different career path than they do. And so it's really fun. I mean, I, I 100% feel like part of the family. They have made me feel so incredibly welcome. I'm, you know, very close to Jay and his wife, Courtney, and their children because we're, you know, closer in age together. Right. Um, absolutely love Bob. Absolutely love Steve. Love Steve's family. Love Jocelyn. So they've all been um, very welcoming. And, and I feel like I fit right in. It's been wonderful. I heard you ruined the whole podcast, though, with your leftist liberal views. <laughs> oh, sure. That was only the most recent email that we read out loud when when Steve, like, it was so funny, too, because it was like Steve's segment about gun control. And he right. would talk the entire time. And I probably was like, yeah. And then they were like, that camera. <laughs> Holy That's shit. all it takes for some people. <laughs> no. It's like, oh, she said a word. I blame oh. her. Yeah. And get this, there are whole Reddit threads dedicated to the fact that I have vocal fry and the fact that I have upspeak and talk like a valley girl. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's amazing that you're so bored. Although I'm from where, where do you, where do you live right now? I live in I Los Feliz, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's okay. kind of on the east side of LA, in basically tucked into Griffith Park. But I, I oh. lived for the first, you know, five years that I lived in LA. I lived right in the heart of Hollywood. So okay, and then that's Hence. that's like between Burbank and downtown, then maybe. Or? Yes, exactly. Um, Los Feliz is kind of halfway between. Let's say on on all sides, it would be. Burbank to the north, um, kind of downtown to the south, and then on either side, it would be kind of halfway in between. Hollywood and maybe Glendale. That's a pretty decent area, I think. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I it's it's right. beautiful. Yeah, because I'm I'm steps from the park. I can go hiking anytime. We have a beautiful view. Um, I can even pull out the telescope and actually see stars, which is pretty rare in a big city. Yeah. No, I grew up in Camarillo. I don't oh, okay. know where that is. Oh, so you're like, is that the valley technically? I guess it's a valley. No, that's more like. What San? Oh, it's Bernardino. on the way to San. Is is Camarillo on the way to Santa Barbara? It's where the um. Yeah. The it's, outlet it, mall is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have definitely been there. Um, if you if you're on like I think it's the 101. 
then you go by, you'll see like this big um, high school stadium with a scorpion painted on the steps. Maybe you can see it because that's my man. Like I just wandered into an episode of the Californians. On oh my god! And so you take the one one and get off before the one thirty four. That's horrible. Oh, but you you didn't grow up in California. You grew up in Texas. Where's your Texas yeah. accent? Yeah, I don't have one. Um, I yeah. I apparently never had one. I do say words like y'all, um, but I think most people do. It's a good word. It's second person, you know, plural. Yeah. Inclusive, which, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. um, every other language has it. I don't know why English doesn't have it. Um, I do have a handful of words that I say that my friends point out to me and say are very Texas. Um, the two main ones are, okay, so you know how you'll purchase a package for either your health or your home to protect you in case if something goes wrong. You're buying, what are you buying? A gun. No, like from no. a salesman, <laughs> like all Texas, state or farmers. <laughs> oh, or insurance. Yeah. Hey, okay. Wait, 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 wait. You both just said it differently. And one of you said it like a southerner. Oh, who did it? You did. Oh, I did it. Where are you from? I'm well. I grew up in SoCal. I grew up in Camarillo. Okay, but wait. My say mom it. is from Alabama. Your mom's from Alabama. Say it again. Yeah. Insurance. Yeah. So no? ap- apparently, Southerners say insurance, and everybody else says insurance. Oh. <laughs> and it stresses on the yeah, second. Yeah, and it's now. people can hear it. Um, another thing that I say is umbrella instead of umbrella. Oh. <laughs> and it's a very southern thing to put the emphasis on the first syllable there, but that's pretty much say, the extent of it. I also say shrimp. Ooh, shrimp? Shrimp. That's, that's just like Mostly. objectively wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like that's shrimps? Not an accent. That is how everybody. That's just wrong. That's how Shrimp. But on the podcast this week, I don't even think the episode's aired yet for SGU. It'll go out tomorrow. And I don't know if Steve will edit it out or not, but they said that I pronounced the word O F T E N wrong. They all like railed on me for it. Do you say often? I say often. Oh, you and say like, often. Oh. Yeah, and they're oh. like, you don't pronounce the T, it's often. Often. Which I disagree with. Because if you often. shorten yeah. the word to oft, you say oft. Yeah. <laughs> you don't say off. That's no. Midwestern, isn't it? I say often. O- often. I think often is Midwestern, but the Midwestern accent is kind of the um, preferred accent, like the neutral oh, it's Midwestern. The standard. Yeah, it's a standard guess, for yeah. broadcast. But I think it's not because, it's less because I'm Southern and it's more because when I was young, I was a singer and I was you know, trained um, vocally for many, many, many years. And so I think I do over-enunciate certain words because of that. That's right. I read that you auditioned for American Idol. Uh, Is that real? Where did you read that? I should figure out how to delete that. Um, On your Wikipedia page. Oh, bastards on Wikipedia. That is correct. editing my Wikipedia. Second season of American Idol, but ultimately did not receive a ticket to Hollywood. Hilarious! That that uh, is look, all true. I auditioned for there's the, a source. Yeah, I auditioned for the second season of American Idol, and I got something like three or four callbacks, um, and then I got cut on the final callback, the one that would have sent me to Hollywood. And oh, I'm so yeah. glad I did because my life would be very different. <laughs> yeah, you. I don't. I don't know what would happen if you're. Well, if you're successful in that, you get a yeah, whole contract. She'd have a recording contract. Yeah, you have a tariff, yeah. but you'd have a contract where they like own your ass and yeah. So yeah. I, 
I was in Texas. I was working on my undergrad. I mean, American Idol's been on for a really long time. I think I was 17, maybe, when I auditioned for the show. Um, my boyfriend at the time was super sweet and came down. I can't remember if it was in Houston or Austin, but it was definitely a drive, and we had to stay in a crappy hotel overnight. And for camaraderie, he auditioned also and sang like a terrible misfit song terribly um and it was really cute and sweet and he of course got cut immediately but they kept calling me back and i had to keep skipping class to drive down to do these callbacks it was an interesting experience to say the least it's not it's hard to tell what happens on that show it's not all the same day like oh you just God, kinda, no. And also half the oh half God. the callbacks aren't televised. Like they cattle call you at first. So they'll have right. 10 people in a room and you'll just step forward and sing like two bars. And then they'll say like, you, 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 you're moving on. And then after that, it gets to be a little more specific and you're in a private room with the producers and blah, blah, blah. And they give you a lot of feedback on how you're dressed and on how you carry yourself. Um, also, they make it look really compressed on TV. Like you're standing right next to everybody. But the truth is right. you're kind of in a basket it feels like you're in a half court basketball field the judges are really far away and there's a wall of tv cameras next to you and i had never done any tv yet i didn't start my tv career until i was in my mid-20s and um had no interest in it i always thought i was going to be in academia and i was like just really afraid of the cameras i had no tv presence i looked at the floor a lot you know and they're like oh they're like we like your voice we like your look we don't think you're like tv ready because they want the people who walk up and they go like i'm a star you know yeah (laughs) And that right. wasn't right. I was like, oh, hi. Oh, I'm going to sing jazz now. <laughs> you know, so it didn't really <laughs> well, work in my favor. Uh, you have to sing multiple songs. And, and oh. that's the annoying thing. They all have to be off of an approved list because they have to have the rights to air them. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. you're going through the list like, oh, what can I teach myself? Or what do I already know? What matches my personality? And of course, I think back then I was like, I'm still kind of pierced and tatted. But back then I also looked kind of, you know, I had a short pixie cut that was dyed blood red. And I wore like bondage pants and I looked super punk rock and i'm sure they wanted me to sing joan jett or something and then i came out singing like proper jazz music oh, and they were like mm, i don't i don't think that's uh what we're looking for it's like like oh, jazz shit. standards or something yeah like because that's what i sang you know it's like a competitive jazz singer oh my god it says you have a minor in philosophy here i do have oh, a minor no. in philosophy Everybody what should have you? to take philosophy in college, especially yeah, people straight. who have a PhD. Damn it! Like, if you're going to get a doctorate of philosophy, you should have at least some at least philosophy take an background. Intro course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's true. What uh, led to the minor in philosophy? Uh, laziness. No, I um I started school really afraid of science, like most I think young women do. I had the standard sort of path through public school where I liked science when I was a kid. As I got older, it became really um, overwhelming to me. I thought I was bad at math and science. I thought I would stick to the liberal arts. When I went to college, I was a vocal jazz performance major when I first started. I went to a really good school for, for voice. And when I realized that the... I was kind of sucking the joy out of it for me to focus on it so academically and to take all of the theory courses and have to take so much piano, which I I, I get really frustrated because I'm not good at playing piano. Um, I decided I need another path. And I went for psychology because I thought it would be easy. And along the way, I just discovered some philosophy courses that seemed kind of interesting. And I sort of didn't even plan the minor. I think I just realized towards maybe my senior year that I had so many courses that if I just took one or two more, I would have a minor. 
Um, oh, and then same through thing that, <laughs> yeah, it's like, right. Cause the minor is only like 18 or 22 hours or something. So it's just a few courses. Um, and then after that, that's when I really found science through my psychology degree. I ended up doing a bachelor of science and doing a research project and working really hard with some great professors. That's when I started to realize, Oh, you know, there's a scientific aspect to psychology. Um, it's, it's really about the brain. It's about behavior. I'd love to learn about neuroscience and cells more specifically and, um, the functional relationships between them. And that's when I decided to go back and get a neuroscience degree and then, um, you know, move on in graduate school. But yeah, I was scared. Did that have, um, did that going into neuroscience, did it have anything to do? I know you're, I don't know if I, you want to, if you want to talk about this, but you, everything says you're very vocal about, but like depression and anxiety. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Was it Did, related to that? I don't know, honestly. Like, because the truth of the matter is, lately I've been thinking whether or not I want to go back to school and whether or not I want to focus in the clinical sciences and maybe like go out for licensure to do therapy. But when I was young, I was like not in a good way. You know what I mean? I, I struggled yeah. with depression, anxiety, not so much anxiety. Like I. You know, I had panic disorder for a while, but I think that was really tied to smoking a lot of weed. Um, but like depression, <laughs> for sure, I've That's struggled with since weird, I was a child. That, that yeah, stuff it's... had the opposite effect on me. Yeah, it did. On I me have too, a lot for... of social anxiety, and I oh, can't, gotcha. I can't smoke weed because uh, of my job. But um, but it makes you feel more comfortable in social. That that makes sense for me. Weed was was like. Uh, good until it wasn't like I smoked weed every day for many, many years. And then all of a sudden I would feel like my heart was going to explode. It sucked. Um, so, but, but the depression was big. Right. And it was like totally unmanaged. Like I would go to different therapists throughout my life, but I was always afraid to take meds. And I thought I didn't need meds. And I thought, Oh, only like weak people need meds. And I don't, right. I'm not one of those people. I can will myself out of it. So when I was young and I was studying psychology, I absolutely didn't think that I, um, would ever be able to be a shrink because I was like, I'm too crazy. Um, I did not think about that aspect of psychology at all. I literally studied psychology because it seemed like an easy degree. So uh, you enjoy philosophy. I keep trying to steer this back to philosophy because Matt has no idea about philosophy. Yeah. So. Oh, hey, interesting. You gave me that, that book. He gave me an intro to philosophy <laughs> Which book did he give you? It's a comic book. Uh, version of the history of philosophy. I learned it's a lot philosophy from it. in comic book form. I love that. It's like philosophy for so dummies. It's helpful. It's a great book. Except yeah. for like huge dummies, like more than like philosophy for dummies. Too much for you. Here's a comic I, book. So. so I got you know a basic philosophy kind of foundation. I didn't. Fo- I focused my energy in in the cer- in a certain few areas that really interested me. So most of my philosophy education was in the philosophy of psychology in the mind, the philosophy of natural sciences, and then on the flip side of that, in the philosophy of religion and political philosophy. So I didn't do a lot of like the really esoteric. I read a lot of existentialism when I was young because I was like fucking depressed, and that's what you do when you're depressed. Um, <laughs> but I didn't really get a lot into like a epistemology or phenomenology or any of like the core things in philosophy. It was a lot more kind of reading Plato and Machiavelli and reading modern sort of psychology and and science and and teasing apart the scientific method and trying to understand the philosophy behind science Um, and doing a little bit of religious philosophy because I had a great professor who was, we could not peg down his religion. And in Texas, that's really interesting. Oh, Oh, yeah. So you you did a lot of Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the standard, yeah, structure of scientific revolutions and Popper and Eccles. I mean, I like, you know, rolled my eyes during most of that. But yeah, but I studied all of those foundational people and 
in that well, you know, area. You know um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or you've met him, I think. Oh, right? yeah, we're friends. We're friends. Is it, now, is he the one that has kind of discounted philosophy and science? He's definitely come under fire for speaking about philosophy out of turn because he is not a philosopher and kind right. of knows nothing about it. <laughs> and this is a problem. I think this is a problem sometimes when we assume – a good example of this I think would be Michio Kaku. When we assume yes. that because somebody has expertise in a particular field that the, they can then speak out about these other things that they maybe don't have any business talking about. Um, right. It's tough, you know, and it's something that we as skeptics have to be critical about. Okay, who am I looking to for expertise and what is their actual education in? Because we'll see this a lot with like climate denialism. It's like, oh, well, I'm a scientist and I deny climate change. So it's like, well, but aren't you like a you know, like yeah. a podiatrist or, you know, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> something else. <laughs> exactly. It's like, there's always something like not related. So you've got to, you know, really do your due diligence and understand. Maybe I go to that person when I want to know about these celestial events, but they're probably not the best person to go to, to teach me about neuroscience because they don't really have any expertise in that area. Yeah. And that's hard there's for me because I'm a science communicator. So I have a little bit of expertise in neuroscience and everything else is learned but my job is to do journalism my job is to interview scientists and help translate what they say to the public in a way that's really meaningful and and i don't have expertise in a lot of the fields that i actually do communicate which is why i have to make up for lost time and make up for those gaps by being a really thorough reporter that's a that's a really hard challenge there's so, there's such a disconnect between the science and the reporting of it sometimes like, mm-hmm. even if it's just headlines or, or oh, articles God. on paper. Yeah, it's bad. And also, there's a huge disconnect between different kinds of sciences. This is something I struggle with a lot working in media and especially in television. Because a producer will come to me and say, you're a scientist. Like, let's do a show about blah. And I'm like, I fucking don't know anything about that. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> or like, you're a scientist. So do you want to, like, review this new gadget? And I'm like, I'm not a tech reporter. Like, those are two totally different. <laughs> but people lump all of that together because they don't know what science really right. is. They don't know it's a process. They think right. it's like, oh, you you know stuff about things that are confusing. And it's like, it's just nah. this one monolithic it, thing. It's exactly. science. <laughs> it's science. And since I know science, I'm good at all science. And it's like, well, I can, I can prepare and I can interview the right people and I can, you know, help you get to where you need to be. But no, I don't have like encyclopedic knowledge about science. Right. I know that well, the still, thing I dedicated a, my life to. That's it. You'd be a better choice than, than some things you see out there where it's just like, get the sports reporter. Hey, we need someone to do this story. You know? oh, That's yeah, also sure, true. I mean, it is a I'm struggle, a you know. <laughs> and it, it, it's frustrating because there's so many good journalists out there. You know what I mean? There's so many really smart people out there who, like, do their due diligence and they work really hard. And then you're right. Sometimes you see these, like, hired faces that you can tell are just reading a script. Yeah. And you're like, that's but, a bummer. I mean, you're, you're the real deal. You've done scientific papers, right? You were. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm minimally published. You know, I did a master's and I started a PhD, but I did not get very far. And I didn't actually do any publications based on my PhD research, which again was barely any research. Um, but I did, I did publish a little bit while I was working on my master's. And, and weirdly, I published um, twice when I was an undergrad. Once was um, on some of the research I did for my thesis. But another time, I actually wrote a book chapter for a book that one of my professors wrote. So that was a really fun thing. And it, it was a big honor because she entrusted me to to do a lot of research and to write for a book that she ultimately, you know, uses as a textbook. 
Wow. Yeah, so I'd rather have someone like you uh, discussing or investigating or doing journalism on an unrelated scientific field than, uh, yeah, somebody out of the blue who, you know, majored in, say, jazz. Yeah, you know, I think that there's science communicators come from all walks of life, and it's really cool to see how they come together um, from from varying places. So you see, um, you see scientists who later in their careers decided to switch switch gears and become science communicators. You also see incredible journalists who are trained in journalism, who are just very good at that, who decided then to specialize in science reporting or science communication. And then you see some people who really were in many ways amateur scientists. You know, I have a good friend named Brian Sweetek who has written multiple books about paleontology. He's, I'd say, one of the preeminent uh, paleo popular science writers. He has a blog for Smithsonian. He, um, He has written for like every major outlet you can imagine he's just got his finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in paleo and he's also kind of an amateur paleontologist he goes and does field work he goes on digs all the time but i don't think he's actually trained in paleo he's just made it his mission to learn everything you have to know to be the best paleontology writer out there so people do approach it from different um different ways but yeah obviously there's a difference between being a reporter being a journalist being a true science communicator somebody who dedicates your life to it and um and being a host a television host that's great i mean at least i think the big thing is at least you're aware uh, i wouldn't say of shortcomings but you're aware that like hey i don't know everything about every topic that's not a lot of writing i see sometimes Oh, I don't know much about most things. Like, yeah, right. let's be clear. But that, like, that's the important thing is people just say like, oh, fuck it. I can just, yeah, I'll just write about this. Why not? So, yeah. You know. no, that's her philosophy <laughs> training though, Matt. <laughs> that's the Plato. That's the Socrates in her. It Wait, really is important to be able out. to say. And I think I learned this long before I started my work as a sci- science communicator. I learned it when I was working as a, a TA first and then a, a professor. Like, you have students who are just like these sponges and they have these fascinating questions and they want to know everything. And you're like, I don't know, let's figure it out together. Like it's so important to break through that sort of ego, which you get, especially as a young professor, I would see a lot of my peers fall victim to trying to seem like they're in control or trying to seem like they're more knowledgeable than they are trying to prove how smart they are. And the kids would eat them for lunch. Like the most important thing is to just go in try your best to be as humble as possible and say like, I know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. And sometimes I'm really wrong. So like, as we're venturing through this together, let's learn together and let's challenge our assumptions and, and, and figure it out. It's so important to be able to say, I don't know. If you can't say, I don't know, I don't think you're ever going to be effective as a, as a journalist or as a science communicator. You absolutely have to go in assuming that there's so much more that you have to learn. That's a great point. Um, to just make this about me for a second and flying. Of course. Because it's, pilots yeah. like love to talk about <laughs> flying about everything. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was an instructor, that was a huge thing that my instructor taught me and that I passed on to my students, which was like, don't be afraid to admit you don't know something about flying. Pilots get huge egos and we always want to believe like we're the best and we don't want to admit that we don't know something. But those mistakes or that but that lack of knowledge leads to, you know, accidents, incidents, you know, crashes or or whatever. And, oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. When somebody's yeah. like relying on you, right. it's absolutely imperative that you be as humble as possible. Yeah. We have to, we have to just, I don't know. So let's find out, you know, that yeah. was our big thing. 
Yeah, no, it's I think it's a good mantra just in life. It's good. I mean, I, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, so I have no idea. I'm kind of talking out of my ass. But I would assume it's good as a parent to not just pretend you know everything, but instead like encourage your children to discover things for themselves and look them up. It's a, definitely a good mantra as a teacher and just in general at work, you know, don't feign expertise. It right. always <laughs> is going to blow up in your face. Like you're always going to end up making some horribly fatal error and then everybody's going to be really pissed at you. It's better to just go in um, open-minded. Chuck, you do that work all the time, right? You just, no matter what, you know what's going on. <laughs> it does. I'm a doctor. It's, uh, it comes with a course. Yeah. <laughs> Don't question me. I, you know, I miss the 1950s, you know, the doctors on TV where they just tell anything and they're like, okay, I'll go do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, today it's more, uh, could you read this 15-page article I've uh, printed off from Google and let me know what you think of it type of thing. Uh, really? I miss the days of the patriarchy and the authoritarian yeah. <laughs> uh, system. To be honest, you were, it probably would have been easier. Right. Yeah, it would have been really easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking they, of They come in self-diagnosed to him already, I think. Oh, yeah. Steve, well, Steve says that's actually a big problem, and it's really common that he he struggles with, too, that, like, people will come in and basically say, like, this is what's wrong with me, and I need this drug. And it's like, wait a minute, like, let's figure that out. Yeah, it's 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 definitely tougher because uh, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there. And um, without training, yes. uh, a little bit of medical knowledge is a really dangerous thing. Exactly. So without a lot of training, it's hard to sort out what knowledge you can rely on and what knowledge is really dangerous for you. Yeah, I mean, so. the trope, right, is that you go on WebMD because you have a headache and, like, you end up with testicular cancer. And you're like, How do <laughs> right, I, exactly. I, I don't have testicles. It's very strange. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure I have testicular yeah, cancer. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, I'm, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure it's testicular cancer. Yeah. Uh, just, just give me my Oxycontin, Chuck. Just don't yeah, question yeah. me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just write the script. Uh, it says here, too, that you uh, were raised Mormon. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that's the whole point. That I am we, true. Yeah. We called you that's for it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We're so finally getting we're around to it. edit everything else out and just start the interview uh -huh. here, right? We'll just write. Yeah. We'll start here. <laughs> Um, so Matt, uh, came to Utah. So you've been in Utah for a long time, Matt, and had to deal with Mormon culture. I was raised Mormon, but kind of probably different from you. My parents were <clears throat> fundamentalists. They, uh, believed in polygamy. So the original Mormonism. No Joseph way. Yeah. I don't, I've never uh, met anybody like that. I've just seen them on like TV. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's well, part of that whole FLDS thing. Yeah. They weren't polygamous and, and still aren't. They just believed that it was necessary before you die, <laughs> so you yeah. have to get into the highest level of heaven. I oh, so they're just going to like wait until they're that, really old. But they don't practice it. <laughs> yeah, that's yes, weird. That's what my grandfather did. He waited until all of the uh, kids were raised and out of the house, and then he got a second wife. Gotcha. So it wasn't something that they were like, "Hot damn, I'm going to get a bunch of wives." It was, "God, I, this is something I have to do." Uh, because yeah. it's required by my religion. So yeah, my parents were like traditional LDS. They weren't FLDS. They were like the people across the street in Big Love, not the people that Big Love was about. <laughs> um, and but yeah, you guys they, started out Catholic, right? Well, or your parents did at least. Yeah, I mean, my dad's Italian, my mom's Puerto Rican. So they converted together, but that was before I was born. So all I knew was the Mormon faith. I was raised in it, but they themselves are both from Catholic families How and they converted happen? together. When it happens leave. a lot. I mean, I I see Mormonism as a really intriguing faith for people who are 
sort of intelligent and frustrated with their religion that they were raised in. Because we've got to remember what Mormon offers a lot of people. The reason it's batshit crazy is because there's an answer to every question you could possibly have. So whereas you know, a young Catholic person who's struggling in life is like, oh, I don't really understand how like Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God are the same person, yet one gave birth to itself. And I'm, I'm so confused. And the Mormons are like, we got an answer for that. And they're like, I don't really understand how this thing could work. And how could that? Oh, we got an answer for that, too. I mean, ultimately, it leads to you having your own planet. But we got an answer for that. And oh, I think the it's part. Yeah, I think it really <laughs> works for a lot of people because it it um, is very concrete. Well, I mean, having no hell is a big draw. I yeah, mean, that is a big draw. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, superficially, the Mormonism seems really attractive on its surface. Yeah. Hey, you can live with your family forever. Uh, there is no hell. There's, there's three levels of heaven, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so they'll market all those superficially very interesting upgrades to mainstream Christianity. But once you get a uh, scratch under the surface, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge it holy shit. shit. It's, but it's, honestly, I feel like it's just as bad shit crazy as all the rest of them. I mean, it's got its own flavor and its own twist because it's more, decidedly more modern and American. But um, it's, you know, they're all pretty crazy. I do think that another real draw for people to the LDS faith is that, like, most Mormon people are really nice. And it's they, just they, like that episode of South true. Park. Right. <laughs> They're like, yeah, they're like, holy crap. They're like really family oriented. They're healthy. They're nice. They're warm. Like I want to be like them because I'm struggling. And that's how a lot of people get caught in the web. And I think that happened to both my parents. My father's still Mormon. He has a Mormon wife. They have Mormon kids. Um, My mother left the church after they were divorced. I'm not sure how much her heart was ever in it. I don't really know how to categorize my mother, maybe like a secular humanist. She's always been very supportive of me, of my atheism. Um, And so as much as I'm not sure if she's like not a believer, she is a believer. She's definitely more secular. um, And I appreciate that about her. But my dad, yeah, he's full on Mormon, like going to, you know, celestial kingdom it up up later. They have got married. I mean, they're already married before. They got married in the temple. No, no, no. They, they, they converted before they got married. Oh, okay. So they did get married in the temple. Yeah, I was well, sealed to my parents. I was sealed then. to my parents. My God, you're part of the covenant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, for you sure. You were born in the covenant. Yeah. No, for sure. And then my dad, oh, yeah, I'm horrible. To, my father is like, I'm the biggest, saddest. You know, I full on broke the the worst rules of the church. Like, I rejected the church even though I am you know, a fully kind of fledged member. And so that's, yeah, it's really tough. And so you end up with this situation, as I think most ex-Mormons have, where like you feel deeply sorry for your Mormon parents and they feel deeply sorry for their atheist kids. That's really where the conflict lies. It's not about hatred. It's not about anger. Yeah, you still love them. It's, 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 and it's not even really about anger. It's about like, actually literally worrying about their immortal soul. Like, I know that that's how my father feels about me. And for me, I'm like, my poor dad, he's like living in this big foggy bubble. Like there's so much more out there, but he's stuck. And I think that's always, a you know, an impasse that, you know, we're, we'll have to struggle with. Yeah, his reality is that in the afterlife, what is it? Like, you won't be there. You'll be... I'll be like in outer darkness, I think. I think You'll get the, tel- the, the, the which one? celestial kingdom. You think, celestial? even though I'm like, I reject Jesus Christ as my I, Lord and personal yeah. figure, I am an atheist and do not believe? I don't I know if I was taught like correctly. Full on but outer I think darkness, I don't know. You would have to actually know that Jesus was 
the Son of God uh, and, and the absolute truth and have that revealed to you and then reject it. But you and don't think, you so you don't think that, that like A, being born to uh, sealed, you know, being born and sealed to your parents, B, being baptized at the age of eight and C, like bearing your testimony kind of qualifies as that? No, you oh, get okay, celestial cool. kingdom with the atheists, but that's where you're going anyway. Because you're an atheist, you rejected Jesus. So the the second kingdom is for people who rejected Jesus, the Mormon Jesus, but accept the other Jesus, right? The yeah, that's <laughs> so I'm. That's great. So I'm not going to be where like all the gnashing of the teeth is. That's no, good. <laughs> no. You're going to the place that Joseph Smith said we'd kill ourselves if we could see how beautiful the celestial kingdom was. Gotcha. That's not bad. Uh, yeah, that that's sounds not bad. all right. But wait. So then who ends up in outer darkness? Just people who like Jesus came down and was like, yo, Joe, I'm real. And then he was like, fuck off. Yeah. So apparently in your, uh, once you get really, really into the religion. Oh yeah. See, cause s- I'm not privy to that. Cause I'm a woman. That's right. Yeah. 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 You <laughs> yeah. get a second Sorry. anointing where Jesus <laughs> appears to you in person and says, you have made it into the celestial kingdom. And once you've seen after him. You die? Or like while no. you're still alive. Uh, That's what there's a guy who actually got his second anointing and then deconverted, and he's talked about all this stuff in interviews. I can't remember what his name was, but well, yeah, because uh, it was obviously a fucking mass hallucination. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess Jesus didn't appear to him; he just got set apart by some apostle, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, that was okay. a disappointment. Jesus is supposed to appear to you, but apparently that's that's another lie. Oh, yeah. that's why he deconverted. But I didn't even get so Jesus. Like, apparently. There are some apostles of the early church who apparently qualify for outer darkness. Judas does because he betrayed Jesus, of course, and probably Kara Santa Maria. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to be partying it up with Judas. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Horrible. How did how did you become an atheist? Did you have to deconvert from Mormonism or? I. It's funny. I literally have no idea. I've tried to put my (laughs) finger on like when this happened. I don't. It happened long before I found science. Like I listen. It says in your Wikipedia page that you uh, left the LDS Church at fourteen while coming out as an atheist. So that was fourteen years old. Yeah, that's when I came out, and that is true. (laughs) But I don't know if I was ever actually a believer. I don't think I ever really believed. I always struggled with it. And then there was a time after I was fourteen, when I was like sixteen, seventeen, where I had a friend, or maybe fifteen, where I had a friend in high school, and she was like super Christy and I thought she was really cool where it's like oh yeah I totally believe in Jesus again for like a day but right. it didn't really stick <laughs> well see that's, um, I did I did youth group in high school it's kind of fun you get sucked into it and and oh yeah Th- this friend was Methodist and her school like her church was on Custer Road so it was the Custer Road United Methodist Youth the crummy kids and we would um <laughs> we would go and and they always had food and like good shit I was like man church Methodist church is way more fun than Mormon yeah, church suck you in that's um, how they get you in with the donuts and the <laughs> yeah with the donuts on Sunday it's like man we're fasting this sucks yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I ca- about 14 is when I told my dad I don't believe. It's when he came back and said, I have a moral obligation to God to force you to go to church until you're 18, so long as you live under my roof. It's when I came back and said, you know, you and mom have been divorced since I was like seven. I think if I went to a judge right now, I could you know, reasonably argue for full custody with my mother because that's my choice and I think it would feel safer. And he was like, obviously, we're not going to do that. It's your choice, but, um, you know, you'll live with the consequences. And so ultimately, he kind of put me in a position where I had to choose him or lying to myself. And and I chose, um, or sorry, lying to myself and being around him or 
basically rejecting my father as well. And so I've, I've struggled with that a lot of my life because I basically was like, sorry, I can't be Mormon for you. I can't even be yeah, religious right. for you. And so we didn't talk for many, many years many years. And so that was, um, that was a tough, a tough time, but you know, he's, he's older now. He's softened a lot. He's adopted, um, kids, you know, beyond my original stepsisters who are also adopted. They've adopted three more brothers since we've been adults. And I think that he's dealt with, you know, and they're boys for the first time boys. So he's dealt with all the things that you deal with as a father of boys that like he never had to deal with when he only had girls. And I think it's kind of enlightened him to what parenting can, you know, give you. And I think that he's, he's laid off of me a bit and we have a respectful relationship. You know, it's not terribly close, but I do love my father and I, um, I respect him and I respect his decisions. But yeah, like we talked about that rift will never go away because more yeah. than any Thing, I think we just kind of feel sorry for each other. Yeah, and he's yeah. a true believer, it sounds like. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's through and through. Like, that's not yeah. going to change. And it's not my job to try to change that in him. No. I, don't, I don't owe him that or, you know, I don't think his life would be significantly better. If anything, it would totally turn his life upside down yeah. in a later in life phase, which actually is very hard for a lot of people. I'm always impressed by people who uh, come out as atheists early, like at 14, that wasn't even on the horizon for oh, me. No. I was hook, line, and sinker uh, Mormon. Uh, and it wasn't until college and philosophy, I think, that it started breaking down. I mean, I always had problems with the faith, uh, especially my parents telling me that we're, you know, the chosen people and so many people around the world weren't Mormons. And so it kind of didn't click for me that God was that good of a communicator. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't really reject it until probably first year of medical school, probably 23, 24. Yeah. Maybe yeah. later, first year I residency. I think that's, that's pretty common. I'm not really sure why I was able to do it. So I think, I mean, it was obviously circumstantial. My parents were divorced. I was living between two households, which I think helped. My mom wasn't, you know, necessarily an atheist though. She was just always very supportive of me and my process and, and figuring out what was right for me. And, and, you know, my mom was like a hippie. Like she was a, a daughter of the Vietnam war. She was born in the forties. She was in college during, uh, Vietnam. And I think that she really liked, she encouraged my sort of anti establishment mentality that I had a lot when I was a kid, I was a punk rocker and I broke the rules and she kind of, I don't know, like reinforced that in me. And so I think that helped. Without her, I don't think it would have been possible, but it wasn't the right environment for coming out as an atheist. I mean, I was in the Bible, like full on in the Bible Belt in Texas. I didn't yeah. really know any other atheists, but it just, it, it was less about like, I'm an atheist and I need to go do activism and work to separate church and state. It was much more like, I don't believe in God. I think it might all be made up. Oh, yeah. Well, Crap. atheist. Yeah. There was none yeah. around me. It was such a dirty word when I grew up. Oh, for uh, sure. I couldn't, I didn't admit to it. I, I even played along with, a, uh, what was it? Not a, not a secular humanist, but a, a pantheist. Uh, yeah, all the terms. For a while, just because I'm like, I need to ease out of this. And <laughs> <laughs> I need to ease into atheism. Yeah, yeah I, I started out as an agnostic, and then it, it occurred to me that there's really there's no difference. There's like, no difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't really. I don't think I really use labels because for me it was such a pressure thing. It was kind of like when a kid comes out as gay. If they've like built a community and they've like read a lot of books online and they started to figure out like what their core identity is, maybe when they come out to their parents, they'll say like, I'm gay. But if they're younger and they don't have that community support and they haven't really, you know, fully developed that identity, it's more like mom and dad, I'm struggling because I don't think I like girls. And I think it was more like that for me. It was like, 
I don't believe in God. So like, where does that leave me? I don't feel like I'm, I'm being a good Mormon daughter because I've tried and it's not working. Like I got baptized at eight. And when I got baptized, I did it for my parents. Absolutely. I did not do it for me. I did not feel anything. I did not have the spirit. It was like, I just want to be a good daughter. And the longer that you do that and it becomes like, it's kind of like, a lot of people have the psychological experience when they when they realize it's time to get divorced or when they, you know, make some sort of big life decision, like it's time to le- leave their job and move on, where it's like, until they admit it to themselves, it's not quite real. But then as soon as they admit it to themselves, it like eats away at you until you act on it. And that's where I was by the time I was 14. Uh-huh. Like I couldn't do it anymore because I had admitted it to myself by then. But what that meant, I didn't know. I didn't know the lingo. I didn't read any of the books until after I was like, holy shit, I just uprooted um, my relationship with my father. Like things are really weird. I need to figure out if um, what this means to me. And that's when I started reading the books and and getting really into like more existential philosophy and, and trying to understand what it meant to not be a believer. And so you're uh, now a science communicator. That's your full-time job. Yeah, yeah. I'm a full-time freelancer. So um, So I dedicate all my time to that. Such diversity in the field as Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. (laughs) Uh, We had Christopher Hitchens. We had so many old white men. Why do (laughs) we need more Neil deGrasse Tyson is black. (laughs) (laughs) We we do have one token black man. (laughs) Yeah. He may be the same age. Um, no, yeah. So it's true. Old. There aren't that many women. There are a lot of women. I shouldn't say that. That's fucked up to say. There are yeah, tons of women. Yeah, they just don't like, get we don't, the press. We don't get the recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah we don't get the press. No we don't press. get the recognition. I'm in a I'm in a um, good position right now because I do work in television and I'm I'm working every day. You know, I'm I'm taking meetings every day. Sometimes I have great shows that I'm working on. Other times I'm trying to develop shows that I think are even better, shows that more represent what I think matters for science literacy. But it's an uphill battle, A, because I'm a woman, B, because I'm young and I'm kind of alternative looking, and C, because this, the climate of, of entertainment in American culture is shit. Like, it, there's just not an appetite at the network level. I don't think it's true at the consumer level. Yeah. But there's not an appetite at the network level for strong science programming. And so that's just, you know, my my laser focus. I'm working on that all the time. And in the meantime, I figure out how to pay the bills. Well, so you had a show on, um, what is it? <laughs> sorry, the defunct, uh, I think it's gone now, G4 TV. I never had a show on G4. It's just a regular guest. Oh, you're just a guest. But you did interview segments. Mm, Isn't that, because uh, speaking okay. of, I don't, we don't have to get deep into this, but just, it's just out of curiosity. I just wonder what yeah. you thought at the time, but like you had Michael Shermer and two other guys on, and I can't remember who they were. Maybe Sean Carroll? Gotcha. Was yeah. It? So, okay. So I was a regular guest on Attack of the Show on, Attack of the um, show. That was on G4. Okay. That's different. I was oh, different. a regular <laughs> guest and fill-in host on the Young Turks, which is an online liberal news network. And they've had a couple spinoff shows, one of which was The Point. And I have hosted The Point multiple times. And that is the show. It's a web show that I had, Shermer. And I think it was Shermer and uh, Sean Carroll and Edward Falzon, who wrote a great book called... um, being gay is disgusting and all of the other it's basically about all of the things that the bible says are like horrible and wrong um and yeah i had the three of them on a panel to talk about atheism and that was a lot of fun and but then, read the comments on youtube sexist right <laughs> <laughs> but then sexism Woo. came up anyway never never read the comments on youtube oh they're especially bad on oh that video my God. 
Um, there's also a really crazy, like full, somebody brought my attention to an insane thread on one of, um, uh, on a pharyngeal blog about how I feign feminism. Oh, yes. oh, you're not real? Oh, no. no, like, I don't know. Not like, I do feminine. things like hair flips and, like, oh. blink my eyes a certain way that I yep. obviously have, like, all my control over. Yeah, you, um, you might be too like, attractive to be an actual I think feminist. I, like, manipulate men as some sort of succubus, yeah, too, which it. <laughs> to become atheist. I don't, I don't know what my main plan is, but I'm working on it. Um, but, yeah, I did that. That was really fun. And I also was a co-host of a show on Pivot TV, which is the um, the TV network offshoot of Participant Media, which is like a pro-social film production company. So they've done a bunch of movies that you've seen, like Waiting for – so is it Waiting for Superman? Is waiting. that what it's called? Oh, oh yeah. That's the uh, Or so that's Waiting the for Sugarman. Um, yes. So like Waiting for Superman. Yes. They also did um, – uh, oh, my God. They've done every movie you can think of. They did The Help – they did a movie with um, Matt Damon about corn. They did The Fifth Estate with Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, I mean, they've done like every movie you can think of that has some sort of like super Libby pro-social angle. Like they were involved. In right. Oh, Spotlight. They did Spotlight. They won Best Picture for Spotlight. So um, they had a TV network called Pivot. Still have, I should say, present tense. And I did their first flagship show where it was... Um, a very interesting experiment in which they programmed us on an expanded cable package against The Daily Show and had us do a, oh. a new show that was targeted towards millennials who don't have cable. Um, but, you know, we tried and it was a lot of fun. And um, I did some great interviews on there as well. That was a live Daily Show. So I got a lot of good experience on that show. Well, that sounds great. Hey, Matt, I don't know if you know this, but she wrote the foreword for uh, Fighting God, David Silverman's latest Oh, I did know that. I just, oh, yeah, I, I did that, didn't I? I read that uh, when it came out, and I actually had no idea who she was. Oh, interesting. And you still don't. But, but it <laughs> my eye. I yeah, I probably still don't. Uh, it caught my eye because uh, the first sentence was, I was raised Mormon in a comfortable suburb, right? So Yeah. I thought, oh, wow, how about that? And the Mormon. He you people are everywhere. Mormon, a former Mormon, yeah. Fighting God, by the way, Mormon. great book. So good. Great so book. don't agree with everything he says, but so love that he says it. Great book. You know yeah. what I mean? It's so important, I think, that he is on the forefront of that um, firebrand movement because it's absolutely necessary in order for us to get the things accomplished that I think we need to get accomplished as atheists. Right. We 100% need a certain segment of our population to do that. And mm -hmm. so... And he's so good at it. And like, who better yes. than the president of American Atheists, like the unapologetic David Silverman. Yeah. Um, FYI, also wrote the foreword to a kid's book called Charlie and the Tortoise about uh, Charles Darwin as a child discovering the Galapagos uh, finches and tortoises. And it's very cute. Charlie very pro-evolution book for children. There you yeah, go. It's, right. called, People. it's called Looking Tiny Thinkers, Charlie and the Tortoise. And there's it's so cute because when I wrote the foreword, they like animated it. It's an animated book. And so <laughs> it's very cute. Oh, my God. Looking it up right now. I'm a prolific forward author. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get around to forward. writing a full length book. That sounds like too much work, but I do love to write forwards. <laughs> oh, that's a stepping stone, though. You know, it's yeah. just a, it's one step there. Hey, we do have listeners, some apparently. They have questions for you if you want to answer oh, some. Oh, cool. I would love to do that. That's so much fun. Um, the first one, oh, great. Well, I'll just read it. Uh, Paula Farrell wants to know Bill Maher? Really? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> that's, that's a 
ask Paul's question? <laughs> no, I think it's an important. It's an important question. It's not that I avoid it. I just don't actively talk about my personal life very yeah. often on my show, on Skeptics Guide, on whatever. Mostly because it's kind of nobody's business. Um, that said, I think there there are certain things I can say that I can make other people's business because Bill and I were pretty public about our relationship. I was first of all very young and knew nothing about Hollywood and knew nothing about like the power of the press. So when I was in, um, I was working on my PhD in New York when I met Bill and we sort of dated um, on and off while I lived in New York for um, maybe about nine months until I finally moved to Los Angeles and then we we fully committed. And so collectively, I think we were together for about three years, most of that in a in a committed relationship in the same city. And he is, you know, a really wonderful man. He's a really lovely man. In many ways, he actually in every way, he was the start of my psychom career because until he really pushed me into trying to do media, I never even saw that as not just as an option. Like I, it, it never would have occurred to me that it's something I even wanted to do. Like I was an academic. I had no interest in go, going in front of a TV camera and we would go to parties and he would say, you know, we talk about science at these parties and people are listening and they're interested and they're hanging on your words. Like you should try to do this in, in a, with a larger audience. And I was yeah. like, I don't know. And then he was like, no, just, you know, trust me, try it out. And so I did my first kind of trial run was on Larry King live, a, a booking that he absolutely got me. And it was, was big. It catapulted my career in a lot of ways. Um, so I owe a lot to him. Now that said, there are things that Bill has been more public about lately that he was less public about and really less open about when we were dating. You've got to remember this was many years ago. Yeah, I'm 32 now. I think we started dating when I was 24, 24, 25, maybe 26. I don't know, somewhere in there. He's become more outspoken. And I, I have no expertise on this because I don't really watch his show much anymore, but I see things through the grapevine and people forward me things. I he has become I st- more I, I'm openly. I'm the only one around here who thinks he's funny. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> I don't like him. <laughs> I think for most people, it's the it's the distrust of the medical establishment and what comes yeah. along with that. The anti-vax stuff, the woo-woo yep. medical stuff. That and I, I mean, I have stories I could share. I have things, but I don't typically like to do that. It's not about that. It's not about throwing anybody under the bus. Let's just say that we fundamentally disagree about certain um, scientific approaches to medicine, and it was an issue when we were dating. It um, continues to be a difference between the two of us. Um, I'm not going to excuse it by saying Bill's not a scientist because I think that's a bullshit excuse. Um, But he's not. He's not a critical thinker in the sciences whatsoever. He may be a very strong atheist, but he is not a scientific thinker. He does not have a background in science. And I think that his sort of political persuasions in many ways overstep his skeptical hat. But I don't think he ever is has claimed himself to be part of the skeptical community. Oh, he's no. definitely not never proven to be part no, of the skeptical never... community. <laughs> well, yeah, he, the he's only very much uh, like on his show, he'll if if he agrees with the topic, it's very much like this is the facts. These are what the scientists say. Trust the scientists. And I just like yeah. we'll just keep pushing that thought forward. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and that's th- that's a really difficult thing for a lot of people who I think fundamentally don't understand the scientific process and are fundamentally really caught up in the political process is that it's that reasoning skill. As you know, this isn't just a, a, a choice that you make once. It's a constant flexing of your skeptic muscle. It's a right. skill that you're constantly trying to home and develop. And um, if you don't make the decision to do it, to be a skeptic, then you're going to constantly fall victim to 
woo and and these um you know credulity in, in areas that i obviously are, are big issues and and it doesn't help that he is a v- victim in many ways of hollywood culture right and a perpetuator you know i don't want to call him yeah. a victim i mean and and a perpetuator like there is just so much medical woo that he takes to be truth because he doesn't trust quote-unquote big pharma or quote-unquote monsanto or all of the you know it's 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 just the hollywood garbage that you see all the time out here which is difficult it's really difficult well, yeah, there's a big, <laughs> big section of the left wing that, um, and you know, it's it's hard because you expect them to be intelligent and uh, thoughtful and critical, but there's a big section of the left wing that's into that alternative medicine and woo and and anti-GMO and 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 it becomes an issue because you you see somebody and you go, oh, you agree with me about God, so you must agree yeah. with me about GMOs, and it's right, like, no, exactly. those things don't necessarily follow. And I get hate, I get hate from my kind of left-leaning audience because I'm an obvious liberal and I'm a self-described progressive, but there's certain things that they see me as being more conservative about. And it has nothing to do with liberalism or conservatism. It has to do with the fact that my politics only follow my scientific views, which is why I don't fit in the box very well. Yep, There's no excuse for that. You have to, the political stuff needs to override everything. That's where we're headed as a country. And that's what's dangerous about not I don't know if dangerous is a really good term, but that's what really worried me about Bernie Sanders. That's what worries me about Jill Stein and the Green Party movement. Like their platform is fundamentally anti-science in many, many ways. And don't get me wrong. Doesn't mean Hillary's a peach. Doesn't mean that I agree with her stance on certain types of like um, environmental viewpoints and policy viewpoints having to do with fossil fuels. Um, but yeah, none of them are fucking perfect. It's tough. Yeah. It's no, a tough situation, no. but, but they're all example, better than Trump. There, there were lots of articles about how can we capture Bernie's support, right? And I thought, you know, given the alternative, who in God's name would vote for Bernie Sanders and then say, well, I think Trump is the best alternative. <laughs> yeah, there's there How? is a core. There is a core of his constituency that's pretty scary because their issue is not with Bernie being the. Their issue is with Bernie being an ideologue. Sure, like they love him because they love his ideology, and they're not pragmatists and they're not interested in being pragmatist voters. So what they just want is somebody who will fuck up the system. Like there are people who want to see incremental change, and they tend to stick with the more moderate republic or moderate Democrats, or sometimes the moderate Republicans. Um, but it, but mostly the moderate Democrats because they want to see incremental change from inside the system. And then there are people who literally want to, quote, set the, you know, B-E-R-N, burn the White House. Like they, they want to fundamentally change the system and go in with campaign finance reform at the core of their platform, which don't get me wrong, I really support. Like I am super pro campaign finance reform, but they're, they're more ideologues than they are pragmatists. They don't really see how easy it is to do that. And they see Trump actually as an alternative to the establishment and that's the concern that does make sense that they then they essentially don't really care about bernie other than the fact that he's against the establishment or they say yeah or they say of the anti-establishment candidates out there bernie is like obviously more in line with my own personal politics but now that he's not in the running i'm i'm interested i'd rather see a crazy person like trump who might fuck shit up you know and break the system (laughs) in order to rebuild it than 
what they think of as a war hawk and an establishment, you know, puppet like Hillary. And it's tough. It's a tough, you know, and these are all caricatures of actual real people who actually really think and right. actually really, you know, would have cabinets and, 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 you know, support and would have to actually really sit in uh, the war room or sit in, you know, a really t- difficult yeah. decision and and basically choose the lesser of all evils. Um, I think sometimes we don't give these people credit for the fact that they have to operate in a sea of nuance and a sea of context and that they can't just be... It's so easy for a single issue voter to look at their candidates and be like, bad, good, yeah. <laughs> awful, perfect. And it's like, oh, but they have so many issues they have to think about. And it's hard because I look at Bernie and go, oh my God, he's anti-GMO, what an idiot. Right. But then I'm like, wait a minute, I have to look at this in the milieu of everything else. Well, the lesser of two evils is still less evil. So this will be the easiest fucking election choice I've ever made. (laughs) I totally agree. It's like... Although in Utah, it doesn't uh matter. Because... Don't don't think that way, Matt. I'll still uh, vote. I'm not going to not vote. Utah um, is a little bit on the map because of uh, Mitt Romney's opposition to Trump. So, that's true, actually. Oh, that's, that's right. Maybe it's more in play than it has been in something like 50 years. And so if we all stay home, that won't happen. Yeah, yeah because, yeah, that's don't. true. Mitt Romney has very vocally tried to yeah. get the, the you know, nomin- nomination away from Trump. Right. He's tried every <laughs> trick in the book to prevent the Republicans from actually having him as their nominee. Um, because Mitt Romney is a moderate Republican. Yep. Ooh, bad. You know? That's bad. Oh, I miss I miss the days of the moderate Republican. <laughs> yeah, it's um, and it's funny because I, I I don't mind the Massachusetts Mitt Romney so much. It was the Mitt Romney that ran for president. Well, but that's uh, not and, real. Like that's what we always <laughs> have to remember. Like the yeah. active politician, you know, or sitting senator or congressman or governor or whatever the case may be. Like that is the track record that actually matters. What they say when they're running, they're just saying to get elected. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Like they have to say so many crazy things to get through that first primary that Republican primary. And it's so funny to see how quickly they move to the center during the yeah. general. Right. Uh, I like yeah. I got to see what Trump does. This is going to be hilarious. Oh, it's going to be so depressing. Carl. We should. Huh? What? We oh, can right. do one more. We can do one more. <laughs> one more? One more. Oh, God. One more from oh, Carl. Yeah. So Pick the best one. Too. Yeah. I know. The best one? Uh, the best one. If you could be named after another one of Columbus's boats, which one would you choose? That's the worst <laughs> one. <laughs> It's the worst one. Oh, no. How about uh, what was your take on the reason rally? Oh, did you? What do they mean? Well, he My wants take. to know about the population attendance and the speakers, and how did your how was your talk received? Oh, okay. Um, I had a really great time at Reason Rally. So I um, was not at the first Reason Rally. So let's just go in um, with that information. I have literally nothing to compare it to except for like things I've heard. Um, So when I came to this Reason Rally, I think there was an expectation that there would be more attendance than there was. There was um, so Thunder, famous internet troll Thunderfoot. Basically, I, I at, when it was time for me to give my talk, I stepped up at the front of the dais in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and there were thousands of people uh, lining up the sides of the reflecting pool and kind of like around the front stage and going really far back. Um, and I took a selfie and I tweeted, tens of thousands strong at Reason Rally, because 
that's what everybody backstage was saying. There's right. tens of thousands of attendees and we expect X number and tens of thousands, tens of thousands. And that's, and I, I regurgitated that. Um, I actually don't know what the final count was. I think it was somewhere around 10 or 12,000. I be heard wrong. 18, but yeah. Still well, not 18, tens of thousands. Better. Still not tens, <laughs> plural. That is true. If it was 18,000. Very hard to tell the difference between 18 and 20,000. Just that. Right. Um, and, and I actually did speak at peak times um, because I was the speaker right before Bill Nye. Huh fun um and so yeah it's like and you gotta follow great. me He's following me yeah, yeah exactly i guess it's better than following him and so oh, i was up at peak you. attendance or, did bill follow me no wait, were you oh, before him right or? no yeah yeah bill followed me and i followed another really great speaker oh oh john delancey John Delancey, Cute. thank you. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, oh my God. yeah. So John, so John Delancey went before me, and he was amazing. And then Bill Nye went after me, and I was like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> but everybody, uh, my speech—I'd never spoken at a rally like this before, and since I didn't go to the first one, I wasn't sure how to approach it. So I wrote a rally speech. It was like rah da da, and then everybody cheered. You know, get up and do the thing, and rah. And so that was really my approach to it was to get people to stand up on their feet and 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 cheer a lot and I think it was pretty successful I got a lot of really positive feedback um, the Mythicist Milwaukee feed like crashed or something so I don't even know if there's evidence of my speech which is kind of a bummer but I I think it was received really well I felt really good I felt really energized I had a lot of friends there a lot of um, great colleagues there but yeah um, basically I got incessantly trolled after my speech because I took a selfie at the beginning of my speech and tweeted the minute I walked off the stage and I got incessantly trolled by Thunderfoot and his like troll army about yeah. the fact that like the, it, there weren't tens of thousands of people there and and all of the sexist stuff came out about this is why women aren't good at math and blah 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 <laughs> and it was like so like you are you Count kidding me 20, with this. I know. people by eye. I know. And I was literally, and they're all like, make a grid and you can count. And I'm like, first of all, you can't base it on my selfie because it like, it like cuts off half the people. And sec- like, it's basically me and a reflecting pool oh, with like a little fuck. bit of people around it because it like yeah. cuts off the extreme angles. Right. And second, like, that's, I was up there giving a fucking rally speech. Yeah. Like, I wasn't like, okay, now three, four, okay, and then multiply that by 10. And then, so I, it was a little disheartening that after such an invigorating experience with all these amazing secular activists who came out to have this great um, kind of free event, that there was just like trolling for the sake of trolling from people that are like ultimately oh, yeah. on our team. They're, it's like, you're atheist too. They're so deep into their narrative. There, there's no way they could have said anything positive. No, exactly. I consider that a compliment. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that level of trolling that was such a terrible. No, it was intense trolling. It was like photoshopping me out of like (laughs) my selfie and putting me like on Mars, and then it's like tens of thousands strong. There's like no one in the background. Like it was all of these ridiculous things, and I'm like, okay, guys. Like, and of course, I'm such an idiot. I'm sitting here like, no, but I mean, well, let's wait until the final number because we don't know for sure. (laughs) And it's like, really, at that point, I do think that that's a semantic argument. If the final count really was around eighteen thousand. Doesn't um, matter. But whatever. I don't yeah. give a out of shit. All the, out I, of all the things they possibly could have trolled you about, that is exactly. pretty Exactly. It's like, terrible. at least it wasn't the con- 
content of my speech. Yeah, right. At least it wasn't. Yeah. And I did a great shout out to a pro GMO activist. And I was really nervous because this was an atheist specific group yep, that yep. was pro separation of church and state that was very liberal. Yeah. And it was real. And I did basically, I, I went through a list of things that I think are really important when they show up on the ballot that we as critical, skeptical thinkers need to keep an eye out for. And one of them was GMOs. And I was like, I don't know how you guys will take this, but like GMOs are the most study agricultural products on the planet. And, and they, you know, can feed a growing population, blah, blah, blah. And the crowd went apeshit. They were so happy. Right and I got so much love after it, all the after parties of people being like, yay, shout out for GMOs. And I was like, oh, that's really great. That, like, I feel like we are starting to change the conversation a little bit. It's a huge uphill battle. And so that, that I think was a really good moment for me from Reason Rally. Oh, great. Awesome. All right, I have one final question. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's about us, we though. Who is it? <laughs> Just Just, no, because this is a thing when we interview people. I want to see if we're going to break the streak yet. Um, so when I emailed you, I mean, I don't think you'd ever heard of our show, but did you um, check it out or listen to anything? So I'm going to give you a really big secret okay. about uh, Karis and Maria Podcaster. You don't listen to any other podcast. I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> perfect answer. We've never had an interviewing who has ever listened to our podcast. Matt, we are batting a thousand. Yes. No oh, one you've never had ever, somebody who listens to your no podcast on ever, your podcast? No, you know, I think David Silverman said he did, but I don't know if I believe him. That guy. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a, a pretty atheist. bad liar. So. You can't trust that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a fucking <laughs> he's a dirty atheist. <laughs> Well, thank oh my you God, that's hilarious. so much for taking some time out. All the things you can catch Kara at, um, her own podcast, which you can listen to even though she doesn't. Talk nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> Skeptics got... I have a problem listening to ours because I hate my voice and I listen to ours. Oh, like, yeah. Everybody... Ugh. Yeah. yeah I, unless, unless you are a full-on narcissist, that's usually a problem for people. Everybody <sighs> hates Matt's voice. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> defining characters for a podcast. <laughs> Uh, Skeptics Guide the Universe, Fab Lab now, um, America's Greatest greatest Makers, and uh, what what else? SoCal Connected pops up every now and then. SoCal Connected, yeah, and it's all online, so you don't have to live in SoCal to see it. Um, you can find everything if you just go to my website, karasanamaria.com, um, and you can find links to support Talk Nerdy there through like Patreon and through the web store. Um, and also just hit me up on Twitter. I'm most active. I'm, I'm on like all the social media outlets, um, but I'm definitely most active on Twitter. So if you want to say hi, um, just reach out to me at karasantamaria. All right. And that's where we can all awesome. stroll you, I guess, right? Go there. Yes. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's so much fun, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, guys, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, thank thanks you. for being on. Awesome. Of course. Yeah, really,